Whatever other thoughts and emotions we had during the events that surrounded the, the death of our queen a few months ago, we were bound to feel a real sense of history, that the events that we were living through were truly momentous and deeply significant, things that were perhaps genuinely for many of us a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Every day seemed to be filled with more newsworthy moments than you might get in an average month or even year. Every time you looked up, something of great significance was unfolding in front of you. One of the key moments in those days came around 6 p.m. on Friday the 9th of September, just under 24 hours after the Queen's passing had been formally announced by Buckingham Palace. The new king, Charles III, who had returned to London that afternoon from Balmoral, had the opportunity to address the nation from the palace for the first time as king, just as his late mother had done on so many other countless occasions before him. This was the king's speech, a speech that he had known for a lifetime that he would have to make one day. It was an opportunity for him to pay a moving tribute to his mother and for him to set out the priorities for his own reign. As he said, as the queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. And wherever you may live in the United Kingdom or in the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love, as I have throughout my life. In the passage in front of us this morning, we have another king's speech, a mission statement, if you like, from a king who has newly come onto the stage and who wants to set out clearly the priorities of his rule and reign. Who was this Jesus? What was he all about? In the first verses of the gospel, Mark introduces us to this king and tells us briefly about the period of preparation that King Jesus went through for his public ministry. Now, as Jesus appears on the stage, what do we learn about him and his ministry? Well, first, we learn that this was a ministry of proclamation, verses 14 and 15. In the early days of King Charles's reign, we heard many proclamations confirming him as king. First of all, that 
St. James's Palace after the meeting of the Accession Council, and then that proclamation was repeated in many cities, towns, and villages up and down the land. Well, here, Jesus makes a proclamation about Himself as King and about the means of access to citizenship in His kingdom. Jesus was first and foremost a preacher, one who came to proclaim the good news of God. Verse 14, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus' means of establishing His ministry and His kingly rule were somewhat different from the norm. It was not done through a royal tour of the surrounding countryside where He kissed babies and shook hands with the great and the good and sought to win people over by a charm offensive. It was not done by means of a military campaign and the wielding of the sword. It was not even done principally, as we'll see, by a demonstration of supernatural power that impressed people and met their felt needs. No. It was laid out through a straightforward proclamation of the truth of the gospel, the good news about God. And this manifesto of King Jesus needs to be the manifesto of the king's people too, of the church. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing for the church is still a ministry of speaking, of preaching, of straightforward proclamation of this message of calling people to believe and to repent, turning decisively away from their sin and to Jesus, calling people to live transformed lives by His grace and for His glory. And if you want proof that this is our job, then go to the far end of Mark's gospel, to Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, and to Jesus' last words of His earthly ministry, where He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. This proclamation of Jesus was already against a backdrop of hostility and opposition. We learn in verse 14 that John the Baptist had already been imprisoned. And so it will be for us. We will be opposed and ridiculed today as we proclaim this message. We will. But proclamation of the King is our job. Secondly, we see the power of Jesus' words in verses 16 to 28. We see a king who speaks with words that are powerful enough to call people away from one life to a new life of following him. 
these two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they leave behind everything, family, home, livelihood. So compelled are they by the power of Jesus' call on their lives. Do we have confidence in the power of the gospel? Do we believe that it still has the same power to completely turn around the direction of someone's life? That it has the power to convince men and women and boys and girls that a life with Jesus is the real thing? That it is so much greater than any life, any life lived without Him? And do we believe in the power of the good news of God to break the grip that Satan has on the lives of so many people today? As Jesus preaches in Capernaum, the power of his words provokes a reaction from a demonic force which lays hold of this poor man. Consistently in the gospel, The response of these demons is to recognize who Jesus is as he speaks in power and to know that he has come to destroy them and to loosen the grip that they have on people. And we see that here. Do we believe the words that we sing sometimes? For example, in that great hymn, Jesus, the name high over all in hell or earth or sky, angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. The devil is exerting his grip in different ways on so many people in the communities around our churches today, and actually maybe on many in here this afternoon as well. Do we believe in the power of Jesus? and his words, to muzzle the evil one's lies, to silence him as he does here, and to break that grip and to restore peace and purpose to broken lives. Do we believe it? Well, do we? You don't look convinced. Do you believe it? The power of Jesus' words, of this message, of good news is unmistakable and compelling. We don't have to be afraid or ashamed of it. And we don't have to worry that the people God purposes to hear this word will miss it or they won't get it. Look at verses 22 and 27. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one with authority, not like the teachers of the law. In verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? Jesus' words are invested with all of the authority of heaven. They carry a weight that mere human words cannot. They cut through the empty promises of human charlatans who promise the earth but deliver us nothing. 
They cut through the lies that others tell us and that we tell ourselves with powerful truth. And they alone are the words of life. This is why the forces of the evil one will challenge and oppose this authoritative good news of God at every turn, and they will oppose all who seek to proclaim it. The devil did this from the very start, didn't he? Do you remember the challenge that he issued to Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God really say, can you really believe this word that God brings to you? And that's still the challenge today. People will say, oh, you don't believe all that nonsense, do you? But ultimately, the devil's opposition will melt in the face of the power and the authority of the king's word. The final thing we learn from this king's speech is his priority. Verses 29 to 45. The priority of Jesus' message is an emphasis on spiritual rather than physical healing. It's a message of forgiveness. If you read on in the, the gospel, you see that very clearly in the incredible story in chapter 2, the story of the healing of the paralyzed man and the conversations that it prompted afterwards. We read in verses 29 to 34 of this chapter 1 about how the news of Jesus spreads and there is a clamor of people seeking him out for healing of their immediate physical needs. Jesus' response is to get away and to spend some time alone in prayer. It almost feels like this is a seminal moment in his story, an opportunity to spend some time alone with his heavenly Father to set the direction of his whole ministry. His disciples come to tell him about the crowds that are thronging Capernaum looking for him and looking for his miraculous intervention in their lives. Come on, Jesus, we need to go. Your public awaits. You can almost hear the, their frustration and disappointment that Jesus had disappeared. But his response is very telling, isn't it? Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. This is why I have come. This is his priority. Not first and foremost to offer physical healing, but to offer spiritual healing through this life-giving message of forgiveness of sins through him. It's the difference between what people desperately want from Jesus and what He knows they desperately need. He knows that humanity's greatest problem and need was not feeding or, or people being able to see or hear or walk. He knew that the heart of the problem was the problem of the heart, the sin problem. Of course, our world is bleak 
and broken in many, many ways. Of course, many long for healing in its different forms. Ultimate healing, including physical and emotional and mental wholeness, ultimate healing will come with the new heaven and the new earth, the existence that is eternal and is free from all pain and suffering and brokenness and, and injustice and decline and decay. But that new creation can only be accessed by those whose sins have been forgiven. Spiritual healing, forgiveness of our sins, is our greatest need. It is the priority. And what happens next is a clear indicator of this priority of Jesus. Yes, moved by compassion, He does heal many, but always also as a clear demonstration of the power of His words and His authority and ability to do the greater thing, to forgive sins. So, the question, the challenge for us as the church is clear. Whether it's here in Connor or back in Lisburn or wherever, is King Jesus' priority also our priority? Are we committed above all other things to the proclamation of this fundamental gospel message? The need for people to have their sins forgiven through Jesus, which ultimately will then lead on to wholeness in every part of their being. Does the way we set up our programs reflect this priority? Is every part of our ministry, whatever other benefits and needs are being provided for, is it primarily focused on creating opportunities to share this good news? And what about how we pray individually? or in those key times when we come together to pray. If someone was listening to our prayer times, would they understand that the greatest need of humanity is to be forgiven by God through Jesus? Or would they think, and forgive me for being provocative, would they think that our greatest need was a cure for cancer, or a fix for sore legs? or a restoration of government, or, or, or. Of course, these are all valid and worthy things to pray for, but do they reflect the heart and priority of King Jesus, who came to powerfully proclaim the need for repentance and forgiveness in Himself? As we draw to a close, How is it with you today? Have you understood your greatest need as a human being? That it's not actually physical health or mental health or prosperity or popularity or a good career 
for a happy family, for a nice house, for a flashy car, none of that stuff. Have you understood that your greatest need is to have your sin dealt with, forgiven, and that that will be your way of accessing King Jesus' kingdom that is eternal and perfect. If you're still chasing after all of that other stuff, and, and none of that stuff is wrong in and of itself, but if it's still life to you and everything to you, I humbly say you're missing out on the real thing. And as we bow in worship before the King this morning and every day, may He conform our hearts and our minds to His. May He grant us now and always deep confidence in this straightforward yet radically life-changing and world-changing gospel message. May He show us as a church how to be set up to make this our priority and to proclaim it with power and with authority to His glory. Let's pray. Thank you, King Jesus, for the message that you came to proclaim and the kingdom that you came to usher in. Thank you for your your grace, which has drawn many here today already to have their lives changed through this gospel message. Thank you for a church here that seeks to proclaim that message as a priority. We pray, Lord God, that you will grant them the vision to know how best and how most effectively to do that in the coming days. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Even as we go out into this, uh, into this world and into our lives tomorrow, may we not be ashamed of it because it's the power of God to salvation for those who believe. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name is part to save but Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray in that name. Amen.